Hello and welcome to In Short. I'm your host, Alicia, an audiobook producer and director. And every other week we'll open with a new author's short story that we've recorded for you. Then, following each, I'll be sitting down to chat with the author. We'll talk about writing, the spark of inspiration, and the process of recording and narrating their story. Then, at the end of this mini-series, I'll be trying to write and narrate my own short story, informed by all the wonderful people I've talked with. We'll also have bonus episodes focusing on audiobooks along the way, chats with industry professionals, interviews with authors, and anyone else I can get to talk to me about audiobooks. This week we have a short story by Barnabas D. Kirk. Barnabas is a British-Brazilian writer, translator, and academic. He currently lives in Rio Grande do Sol, Brazil, where he is finishing up his PhD thesis in Slavic literature. Barnabas has taught courses on language and literature at the University of Toronto, and when he has a spare moment, he can be found taking plant cuttings from the gardens of unsuspecting neighbours. So please, sit back and enjoy this week's short story, recorded from Barnabas's expert blanket fort in the foothills of Rio Grande do Sol. O Galinheiro, a story taken from the Ifochi Tales by Barnabas D. Kirk. Part 1 Mauro trudged up the hill, returning from what was likely his last demonstration in the poultry aisle of his local supermarket. It had started peacefully enough, a cashier greeting him with a wave and, Good morning, Mr Galvão. This was followed by a petition to maintain the peace by the curtsying manager with an illegible name tag. Mauro had acknowledged both with head held high and fingers interlocked behind his back. His plan, concocted under a blanket of mulled wine the night before, had initially appeared sound. He made it past the fruit and veg section without incident, past the pasture and bacon goods too. On reaching the refrigerated cabinets, however, it was the pictures of green farms and open grassy pastures that flipped a switch in his mind. Details remained elusive on what exactly happened next, though the word inappropriate was certainly spoken, perhaps shrieked, and his left trouser leg was ominously damp. He paused at the top of the hill, resting his weight against the side of a hollow tree trunk. He still had some way to go before he reached home on the outskirts of town, but the view below had always brought a certain calm to his day. In a flat cap and bombashes, he made a distinguished silhouette in his middle age, somewhat dated in traditional dress, but thick curls and earth-stained palms gave a pulsing sense of life. He looked out over the town, a skyline of araucarias cloaked in rain. None of it brought him that warmth of old. He wouldn't admit it, though Mauro had increasingly identified with those trees of the morning, when clouds would fall through the valley, reducing thick canopies to two-dimensional outlines, branches east and west sapped black against the scud. Mauro made his way up the garden path, greeted with barks from his colossal dog, Juju. Before him stood his family stead, constructed of wood in the old style, panels solid but in need of a fresh coat of paint. Either side of the path were rows of vegetables, neatly arranged according to the season, then rearranged by Juju's snacking. At this late morning hour, the chickens would be foraging in pasture behind the house. He sat down on the porch, which was the only part of his home that he now shared with visitors. He leant his head against the chair back, took a deep breath and closed his eyes. 
his temples throbbed. The chair rocked back and forth, the creak of its curved rails and ingrained voice of the hilltop, and sleep came easily with the protective smell of home. It was almost dark by the time Mauro woke up. The grass was heavy from spells of rain, and a faint clucking told him the chickens had retreated to roost for the night. He put on the poncho that hung beside the door, swapped his cap for a wide-brimmed hat, and stepped out into the last shafts of light. Out here on the edge of town, the grasses were still filled with the noise at dusk, and his path down the hill was accompanied by the clicks of bats and crickets. Pockets of light formed around houses in the distance, July winds forcing the customary congregations of neighbours in from their porches. Some doors were propped ajar, though by now most people would be coaxing stoves into life and switching on lamps against the gloom. An unexpected smile spread across Marl's face as he noted the golden hour of dusk. It was the time for families to sit together with windows latched but shutters open, their living rooms lit up like a stage. The auburn dust beneath his feet had already changed to a mix of loose gravel and pressed earth, and as he reached the first row of houses, cobbles told him he had reached the beginnings of town proper. The church bells of São Pedro announced the hour with six chimes against a strip of citrus horizon. Mauro's progress down the street was announced by the neighbourhood's dogs, though no souls ventured to assess the commotion. As the city limits of Ivochi continued to stretch each year through new tarmac limbs, so too the evening glow was changing. Back when Mauro's strides were half of those of his current gait, the light that poured out onto pavements was made of orange flames and chaotic dance. Then, a handful of years ago, while grey plumes of smoke still hung over homes, erratic stove glow gave way to the sterility of white fluorescence. Each slab of pavement would be lit with surgical precision, so that even the scuttering cockroach looked paler than its usual caramel hue. Most recently, a flickering had returned to the pathways, though this time in a kaleidoscope of blues and yellows. Faces that had once observed each other in conversation were now pacified, eyes diverted to screens that drowned arguments and stifled any resolution they might have bought. Mauro continued past the gleaming fronts of new builds until a quaint homestead at the end of the street stopped him in his tracks. Here was that dance of old, a sitting room that was practically in darkness when compared to the neighbour's light show. A woman sat in front of a vast cast iron glow, her knotted fingers brushing aside thin grey hair to frame a face that had spent long years under the sun. She sat on the edge of an armchair, staring into the fire with such thoughtfulness that Mauro wasn't sure she was real until she got up to stoke the embers. He waited, expected to see someone join her in the vast space, though after scanning the room, hers was the only comfy chair that he could see. A small table and two chairs were pushed against the wall, beside a bookcase, chest of drawers and an array of frames. It was here, transfixed by the lady in her housecoat, that an idea began to form in Mauro's mind. The longer he beheld the scene before him, the more this new certainty granted him life that had long been missing. Part 2 The car pulled into the drive of number 27 and rolled to a stop in front of the kitchen door. 
A tall figure in a dark suit got out. A woman, somewhere in her fifties, if you balanced her bounce with her ever-furrowed brow. Her shock of curls was readily recognisable around town, for this was Patricia Pinheiro, mayor of Ivochi. Here, however, she was known to her mother as Pachi. She nudged the driver's door closed and paused a beat, accustomed to her mother greeting her with a wave from the kitchen window. When no wrinkly smile emerged from the crochet over the sink, Pachi let herself in. Mother? Mum? After several moments of breath held, listening, a recognisable shuffle could be heard from the corridor. Oh, hello, dearest. I didn't expect you this afternoon, but it is lovely to see you. Pachi observed her mother, Clarice, with open suspicion. Everything okay, Mum? No baking today? I thought you'd be preparing the desserts for the church fete. Isn't it tomorrow? Oh, didn't I tell you? Clarice replied. I decided to have a break from all that, to give me some time for myself. Her arthritic fingers struggled for a moment with the radio, turning up the local offerings broadcast from Doisy Ramones. Then, without looking up, she began to sweep the floor. Pachi surveyed the scene with incredulity. She did indeed recall her mother airing her frustrations with the church group one evening. Old witches, was how she described the other ladies. However, baking had always been a retreat for her mother, a balm, not a chore. Then there was the radio. Rodrigo Andrade, Pachi's father, was famously vocal in his objection to the radio, denouncing it a harvester for the communists. No one knew quite how the metaphor worked, though the radio playing was unusual for her household, even more so for its awful set list of German polka music. Finally, there was the sweeping. Clarice was a lady of a past generation, one that believed cleaning was never to be spoken of, let alone a task carried out in front of others. One's home should be inherently spotless. God forbid the hearth be tarnished with the thought that its inhabitants were the cause of quotidian filth. After several moments of tuber-accompanied silence, Pachi asked again, Mum, is everything okay? Why are we listening to this ridiculous music and the mid-Saturday cleaning? And goodness, mother, are those rat droppings you are sweeping up? Patricia Pinheiro, what awful thoughts you have. Rat droppings. You are a nosy one today. Can a lady have no privacy in her own home? Really, darling, I taught you better. Pachi sat down, surprised by the uncharacteristic scolding. She interlocked her hands in her lap, staring at her palms in the afternoon mottling of light. Pachi had always been a sensitive one, inhabiting a world set apart from others ever since her first days of school. Her mother had spent whole months up at night, worried for her daughter, suffering with her. Time had passed, however. School was replaced with university, then work. Somewhere along the way, Pachi had learned to wear a mask of confidence, of iron will, a mask that slipped at unexpected junctures. Clarice was just about to soften her gaze and apologise when a noise started to come from the bedroom at the end of the hall. Both women froze, listening. Again, some moments later, a cough, no. The faint sound of clucking could be heard over the radio. Rushing past her mother, Pachi turned off the radio, waiting, and she was about to rush down the corridor when a broom handle blocked her way. It's a chicken. It's a what? You don't keep chicken, 
Where? I didn't see any chicken coop when I drove up. And that sound is coming from the bedroom. Which means... Which means that that isn't rat poo. And that that beast must be swanning about your house without a care in... Her mother's gaze halted Patch's outburst. And she settled down in her chair as motioned, waiting. Clarice straightened her apron. She placed the broom to one side and drew up a chair next to her daughter. They sat side by side, in parallel, so that both were facing the door through which the living room could be seen. It was here that Clarice used to sit when baking, her favourite perch from which to monitor the oven while also greeting the comings and goings of her home. Ever since your father passed, God bless his soul, this house has gone from being my pride and joy to a weight around my neck. For fifty-four years, I shared this home with him, then you, and then it was just Rodrigo and I again. Yes, he was a curious one, difficult at times, though I wouldn't... I miss him, is what I wish to say. Every morning, I wake up to a bed that I have to return to at the end of the day. With each week that passes, I dread it more and more. Do you understand? Pachi was silent. This was the first time her mum had spoken of Rodrigo since his death. It was also the first time she had ever heard her mother talk in such an intimate manner. She didn't know what to answer, and she found herself replacing words with tears. Oh, darling, don't be sad for me, Clarice continued. I had many beautiful years, and now, strange as it may sound, I have a new beginning, a new way to see the world. I hadn't told you because I was embarrassed, and also surprised at myself, though now I have a new companion, a chicken. Pachi felt ridiculous now, with tears on her cheeks and the idea of a companion chicken roosting somewhere in her childhood home. She looked about her, unable to recognise what was once her refuge. In the face of such confusion, Pachi retreated to practical manners. How? From where? Where on earth did he get a chicken from? For all Clarice's readiness to explain her unusual situation, on this point she didn't give an answer for several moments. The clucking had stopped down the corridor, the animals settled now that the raised voices had quietened down. Finally, she responded. It was a gift. I didn't see who dropped it off, but I know the chicken didn't wander in by accident. For one... You had me install these high fences that can't be easy for a chicken to get over on their own. A withering look showed Clarice's disdain at having such defences in a town as quiet as Ivochin. But she continued before Patch could comment. Plus, it's as if the bird has lived with people before. Since her arrival, I sit in the evenings in my chair by the fire and Maria jumps into my lap. She actually wants to be petted. She sleeps on top of my bedside lamp and when I wake up during the night, she follows me to the loo. Last of all, I, I know it was a gift because there is only one place in Ivochi where such a beautiful chicken could come from. This final sentence was said with unexpected gravitas, though it took several moments before Pachi caught on with a sharp intake of breath. You mean, it is one of his chickens? Clarice responded with a sad nod of the head, aware of what this revelation would bring. Part 3 Mauro was tending to the bees in the backwoods when he heard Juju announce a guest's arrival. 
The gleam of a windshield caught his eye as he walked back towards the house, but details were blurred behind his veil and smoker. He marched on with more than a little impatience at the interruption, as the people who visited him these days were either after money, land, or both. Once on the front porch, he put aside his equipment and observed the car that stood idling on his drive. Someone was sitting behind the wheel, staring straight ahead, fingers tapping the top of the dash. With Jujul's anxious barking and dusk on the way, Mauro popped inside for the briefest of moments, and returned with a handgun tucked conspicuously into his belt. Taking a deep breath and final look around, he made his way towards the car. About six feet from the passenger door, he froze. He recognised the silhouette that sat in the driver's seat. It was a face he had not seen for some thirty years, but that outline was unmistakable. Patch opened the driver's door with a confidence that surprised her shaking hands. She clutched her fingers, stood as upright as she could manage on the uneven gravel, and steeled herself to face the person opposite. Thirty-three years had passed since their last meeting. What Mauro recalled of their parting in sketched shapes of black and white, Patch experienced in vivid, red-tinged reels that played when she could no longer summon the effort to fight. She had hoped this day would never come, but somehow, an unintelligible relief swept over her now that she was with him again. Patch spent several moments staring, catching up with what the past years might have brought. She noticed he still had that rugged charm that came with his shoulders and stern expression, though the finesse she had fallen in love with was no longer visible in his eyes. Hello, Mauro. Mauro stood still, looking both at and through the woman who had walked up to the front gate. He was not, by nature, a talkative person, though his silence at that moment was something more than just restraint. We made a promise many years ago. Do you remember, Mauro? Juju stopped barking once she had seen the visitor was known to Mauro, and she now sat at her master's feet, whining and nudging his hands for a response. Patch continued, I have come to fill my end of the bargain. You see, I've done some digging. I spoke with my cousin, Alicia, at the supermarket on the Avenida, and she told me that you have spent the past three weeks causing a scene in the poultry aisle. I also spoke with Fernando Antonio from two places over, who told me they cancelled the last of your farming contracts in February. You haven't been to Mass for months, you no longer stopped by Gordus for a drink, and I heard, hopefully just a rumour, that you gave away your truck to the cleaner, who you let go more than half a year ago. She looked around and could see no vehicle on the surrounding land. Threadbare boots on his feet confirmed her fear. Mauro remained quiet, unable to speak, as if he were on the verge of remembering something important. This is how it began last time, all those years ago. Do you remember? Do you remember what comes next? Mauro still did not answer, and Pachi's next words were little more than a whisper. After a few months of increasingly erratic behaviour, you become... You become violent, Mauro. You change, and suddenly you're not the kind and gentle man I know you to be, but instead you become someone who is angry, someone who hurts those around him. It broke us, and it damn well near broke you yourself. The last time, I got you the medical attention you needed, and I promised I would always help you. I know I walked away from us, because I couldn't look at you, not without being reminded of what you've done, but I never forgot you. Do you understand? With the slightest of nods, 
Mauro turned his back on Pachin and walked up to his front door. He opened it, decision made, and walked in, disappearing into a darkness of sealed windows. A muffled sound of whistling could be heard, followed by a banging on internal walls, the sound of metal on wood. Faintly at first, and then with an intensity that made Juju hide behind the visitor's legs, shouts rang out across the front garden until a harried line of chickens identical to Clarice's Maria emerged. Red comb, speckled hackle, white saddle. The chickens gathered nervously in the front garden, unaccustomed to the environment and to being out so close to nightfall. Mauro closed the front door, walked into their midst and counted to ensure all had made it out. Thirty-two stood around him, pecking his feet as if to get an answer to his wild disorder. Mauro took a final look at Pachin, then took the handgun from his belt. He raised it in the air, closed his eyes, and fired into the clouds. The first shot startled them. The second and third sent them flying into the neighbouring tree line. He dropped the gun and returned once more to the house. Pachi remained watching as Mauro entered in and out of his home, first carrying in his rocking chair and other odd assortments from the porch, and then lugging a large canister from the shed to the inner depth of his house. An acrid smell filled the air, and then clouds of smoke began to billow under the shutters and overhanging roof. Flames began to dance at the corners of the structure, and Pachi found Mauro standing next to her, eyes fixed on the fire. She could smell the charred fabric of his shirt, the singed ends of his hair. She knew she should get him straight to Dr. Osvaldo, though Pachi was overcome with a calm that she had only ever found standing next to him. Together they watched the brightening of the light, mesmerised as the house grew like a beacon on the hill. Hi Barnabas, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you very much. It is lovely to be chatting with you. We've just listened to your fabulous story that I'm hopefully not going to butcher the name of, um, <laughs> O Galinero. Mm-hmm. O Galinero, absolutely. Excellent. Um, it sounds so much better when you say it. <laughs> um, and so I really, really enjoyed directing and producing this story. It has so much to dig into and get really creative with. There's so much sensitivity, um, ambiguity. I really, really enjoyed it, um, especially as a short story. It, it felt so um, poignant. Um, and so I want to start there with short stories. Any listeners who have been listening to this for a bit, will know that I'm in the process of writing my own short story, talking to writers whose work I admire and trying to learn what I can from them. Um, I'm scared of the short story. It's scary <laughs> for me. I don't know mm-hmm. quite how to do it. So I want to start there. Why short stories? What's the appeal for you? Why short stories? I would probably say two things for me personally. First of all, I would say that some of the writers I most admire have written fantastic short stories. So from a, on a subliminal level of really wanting to aspire to that sort of level, I, I thought with my eclectic reading taste, reading all these amazing short stories, you see how much you can do with a short story. And it is quite frightening to see how much of a universe you can try and fit into it, mm. but not scary enough to scare you away and not want you to try. So in terms of that 
genre of absolute freedom in a short space of time. I thought it was fantastic. And secondly, on a more practical level, I mean, I started my writing with short stories because it seems to me the ideal format to try out different types of narrators or to see what you can do with characters, to see what you can do with settings or ideas. And I think perhaps the most important thing for me as a writer has been to actually finish a story. I've thought of myself as a writer for years and, mm-hmm. you know, it took me, gosh, decades to finish my first story. And I finally felt, you know, wow, I can actually call myself a writer because I've written something and finished something. And it, that sense of completion was was fantastic. And then once you've written it, you can go back to it and you can analyze and criticize it yourself and see what works, what doesn't. And for me, that process has been incredibly useful artistically. So when you're starting to write a short story, do you does it start off purely from a trying to explore character or place and then does it grow into a short story if you realize it has legs? How does that process work for you? Uh, I'm afraid it would be a, a mix of all, all of that together, which isn't entirely helpful. Often it will certainly start either with a character or an idea or more vaguely a feeling that you would like to get across in a story. And then often, invariably, in fact, I will come across an impasse where I just don't know where it's going to go and I need to put it aside, think about it. I mean, with the short story, you can really go anywhere with it. So in that way, while it's short in form, it's entirely open and it's, that's a challenge. But I find that something quite, you know, why it's a good place to start for me. I find it really interesting that you said um, from a feeling um, because I, I really feel like that is something that is very central to especially the short story we just listened to um, is that it feels like it's really exploring a feeling. Um, and so I haven't had someone say that to me yet, exploring a feeling. Um, so that that's, yeah, it's nice to see that it's apparent in your work. <laughs> it is. I mean, as with all feelings, they can they can be quite vague and it's not always easy <laughs> to pinpoint what part of the story the feeling comes from. I mean, even in the writing process of it. But I'm I'm glad that came across because that is something that uh, drives me when when writing to to share a feeling. It's not so much something you can quantify in words, but mm. if the overall story does that, I'm very pleased to hear it. Um. So, what is it that tells you that a short story, no, an idea, is a short story instead of a novel? I've been thinking about this since other per- people responded to the question. I would say first of all. For me, at least, there are certain limiting factors to an idea that might keep it a short story. So in this instance, it might be a chicken, for example. (laughs) I'm not sure I'd be comfortable making an entire novel based around a chicken as a central plot element. It just, you know, it wouldn't have the legs for me. Um, And then really choosing between a novel and a short story is often the urgency of what you want to portray in a short story. So say if it really is something you're entirely fixed on a very particular feeling or a very particular idea that you can't really not necessarily dilute but lose slightly in the wider narrative of a novel to keep your reader going keeping them entertained the short story allows you a little bit more room to concentrate on what it is you want to want to give to your reader essentially Oh, that's interesting. So it's about sort of one sort of the idea and the feeling and then boiling it down and how to communicate it, how to give it to the reader. Exactly. And, you know, it allows you to limit it a little bit more. And, you know, with things like ideas and feelings that they can be so vague, but they can also be so incredibly hard to delineate in actual words. And it allows you to not 
describe absolutely everything about it. Obviously, in a novel, you don't have to do that either, but it feels a little bit safer somehow in a short story to me. Mm-hmm. So in, I'm interested in the idea that, um, for example, writing a whole novel around a chicken wouldn't have legs um, for you. So maybe I'm, I'm sure there's probably a novel out there. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't wish to off put people out there, no. Um, but yeah, I um, I think that's that's really interesting, the idea of the idea that the small little central point in this case being a chicken uh, wouldn't engage you enough for a novel but for a short story you're able to find something really exciting to say about it I think that's a really nice um, way to define and how to like kind of pinpoint what's a short story and what could be a novel Mm, exactly and I mean in this story we have Maru he goes up to the window of Clarice's house and he looks through and he he sees a very set scene and I I sort of see a short story like that in that you have someone come up to your reader and they look in and they can see everything that's there and they can be satisfied that they're not allowed to climb through the window and look through the rest of the house I mean that that's the scene that you set them and there's a delineation with that that it feels comfortable I hope to the reader that you don't necessarily have to go further than that that's really nice the idea of the short story kind of being the window and you look in and you can see what you can see um Mm. yeah that's nice yeah you can have messy rooms in the back that you know you don't let the readers (laughs) realize all the plot holes Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) exactly let's start a bit more broadly um and then we'll narrow down um where do you get your ideas um what's the sort of uh, generation of them the inspiration i mean i i said so in your bio at the beginning that you you know you've lived in many places you're multilingual and you have like a background in academia um so let's see if we can tie all of those things <laughs> into one question <laughs> right so where to start well first of all yes i've i've been lucky enough to live in quite a few different countries and speak different languages and that really lays bare different cultures in, a, in quite an intimate way when you actually live there and you see how the language is used. And I certainly think that's been a, a large influence on my writing and also why I sometimes use a few foreign words like I have in this story. I, I like the mm-hmm. process of making a little bit foreign for the reader too, to, as a little gentle prod to remind them that there is this other universe out there too and how other people mm. use this language and the culture that it represents. Now, for this series of stories, too, obviously, place is a is a important factor in forming the setting. So, I mean, Ivochi is actually the it's a real town. It's where I currently live in the foothills of Hugurinja do Sul, um, and it's like nowhere else I've lived for many reasons, really, but also mainly for being a place that seems sort of from a different age. So, you walk around and in the evenings, and you hear people speaking a the old German dialect of people that moved here in the 1820s and you have old architecture and then you have the modernization of the city which almost makes the old look even older in juxtaposition to everything so you know daily life is amazing because people are just so you know they can be wonderful and beautiful and hypocritical and just awful and you know it's hard not to gain some inspiration from them (laughs) and then Academic wise, um, I was lucky enough actually to teach a couple of subjects of courses on literature. So the Russian novel was one and Russian short fiction was another one, Mm. which was amazing. And so part of that was just getting an even wider reading circle of what you have and also getting student guinea pigs to to show how they read stories and how they interpret stories. And as a writer, that's incredibly useful to see the 
the jumps that your mind can make in a story that you think absolutely sure this is happening and they, they go off and in this other line. So teaching literature is certainly a great way to, to see how it works in different people's heads. Mm. I'm interested in how all of the sort of different cultures of literature have kind mm. of influenced your writing. I mean, having studied Russian literature in such a, a sort of depth, um, English being your first language, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, English uh, sort of stories, and then you've read um, quite a few Brazilian uh, stories as well. And so I'm interested in sort of, one, the culture of the literature um, that you've experienced and how sort of they play off each other, how they might uh, argue with each other um, and kind of how, how you bring that into one solid story. It's interesting. I've been thinking about this and obviously the Russian side is a huge influence. So, I mean, my thesis mm. on Dostoevsky and it's, it's quite heavy going in certain parts, um, but he also wrote some fantastic short stories which prove how much metaphysical angst you can fit within a single few lines <laughs> and then obviously in the Russian tradition you have Chekhov who I greatly admire I didn't really like his short stories at first but what I think he's fantastic at is accuracy which again doesn't sound very sexy in a literary way but being able to choose exactly the right words and to weigh them just so beautifully within the context without superfluousness I think that's really something you can learn from and then you go right the other way to say uh, Brazilian short stories, which have a fantastic tradition, not quite as old as the Russian ones. Actually, no, certainly almost as old. Um, and so you have Clarice Lispector, who just has a fantastic mind, both in terms of fantastic, brilliant, intelligent, but also fantastic in that, that ability to so easily detach from reality and enter into another world. Um, and then Machado de Gessis, obviously the, probably the greatest Brazilian writer, also was just beautiful at being able to present things for you so you make your own judgments on them and then you know you're leaving it to the reader so how all of this fits together I'm not really <laughs> sure but through you <laughs> they sort of sit somewhere in my mind and then slowly very slowly I filter it through and somehow I get you know what I come out with I actually some of my stories I wrote very heavily influenced to start with by Clarice mm -hmm. and that sort of fantastic element she has with them and actually by the end of the story was much more rooted in realism than I'd originally intended it to be and I think that's part of that process of of making it your own whilst it stews away in the brain. Have you found yourself having written a short story not purposefully being influenced and then being able to see sort of the telltale signs and marks of your influences? Uh, well I sent an article recently on Clarice about her biography and in this article and I'll make sure I link it for listeners as well because it's a really really interesting it's a nice one and in the I mean I've read most of Clarice's work but in the article it actually mentions a story called Uma Galinha a chicken mm -hmm. and I had never read this before writing my story which is ridiculous and it's bizarre and I was I was quite I'm not sure I suppose Reading her story, I thought, oh, gosh, I have to read this before the interview. And it's, <laughs> it's fantastic, her story. And it makes, you know, you realise how good the great authors are, but it also makes you realise it sinks in, essentially, everything you read. And even if you don't have that specific story in mind, that style of the author comes through. So I think this would be one instance where it does. I'm not sure she would quite end the story the way I did. Oh, yeah. I was pleasantly surprised to see that you can reflect people that you really admire. I, I'm so, so fascinated by that because after reading that, um, reading that article, I saw mm. 
a chicken as the title and i thought oh i wonder if this is <laughs> this is um purposeful um well i feel obviously that the the old woman Clarice is named for uh mm-hmm. Clarice Lispector yeah she is absolutely mm. yeah and so i thought oh what a wonderful way to pay homage like and and with the chicken but that was just a brilliant coincidence it was a brilliant coincidence if i'd known how good her story was i might have changed my chicken to another animal (laughs) but it has to stay there now i'm afraid okay so drilling down into this story and being a little bit more specific about the generation of this idea and sort of where where did this one come from so part of it is personal experience of first of all in the setting i i love to walk at the time that maru walks where it's just becoming you know night nightfall is coming and people have still got their windows open and you can see and it sounds slightly voyeuristic but in an innocent way and then really you do walk from those dirt paths from the outskirts into the town that really is growing and they're putting tarmac down everywhere and you get these new apartment blocks that are shooting up and then you occasionally come across these beautiful old homes with wooden beams and the old german style that they have and you know sometimes you do you see all these families playing and then occasionally come across a family or come across a home, should I say, uh, that really is empty and there's a single person sitting there and it, it does sort of kick your brain into motion. And then within that, I've always had a soft spot for chickens, which would account for that and they make excellent pets. Thematic inspiration, I mean, mental health is a big theme within this, which is slightly more universal than a single story. But I think all of us have a someone we love or indeed ourselves have suffered from mental health conditions and too many of us have lost people we love Mm -hmm. to suicide for example so i think as a theme it's incredibly hard to write about because there are infinite number of personal experiences that are completely different from one to the next though i I do think it's something that we can write about more we've certainly gotten much better in the last 10 years of speaking about it and certainly I wouldn't say this is a story completely about the condition that Maru has, especially as it opens and you only really discover it later. So in terms of themes, it's certainly an important one and a and a personal one, but then also it's within a what I would say would be a more complicated context, because I hope the author would feel some compassion for Maru and we see that he's suffering at the end. You have the problem then also of Pachi who has suffered domestic abuse at the hands of his mental health condition, which, you know, is something I would like to get across in my writing and that will hopefully be central in the future is attempting to show this ambiguity we have with with people and that there's no real clear cut way of good or bad or how we understand someone that understand themselves differently and other people will understand them differently. Yeah. But that is, that's really what I was trying to get across and leaving it to the reader, not necessarily to make a judgment at all, but to see it in all its complexity and to accept it more importantly in all its complexity. Because we like things, especially as in society, to be clearly this is this box and this is that box and everything fits nicely and we're all fine. The reality is much uglier. And I want to show that ugliness of things not fitting in a, in the more realistic and beautiful way that it really is in daily life. Yeah, I think um, talking about sort of the contradictions of people, um, especially when suffering from mental health illness. And I think this was such a fascinating look at that because what we got was a main character who we saw a lot of, but we didn't hear from. Um, And so we still leave the story with Mauro as this unknowable 
character, but having learnt so much more. And um, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about the choice to have Mauro not speak mm. um, and, and kind of how how his actions combined with um, Patchy's own interactions with him. I'd love you to talk about how, how you decided to frame it that way. Oh, I'm glad that came through. Um, my thesis actually is on communication within the works of Dostoevsky. Mm. So what I'm really interested in and researching is how we can reread his novels uh, doing a sort of reparative reading as has been termed. So we, we consider it again and consider what voices may have been silenced for whatever reason, whether it be sex, class or otherwise. And so in this sense, Mauro is fascinating that he is so central to the story and we not only don't have any words from him, but we actually also never have a single thought directly mm. relayed from the yeah. author to him. Um, and that is a conscious effort to distill what it is that he might be thinking through what we have around him. So I hope in the narrative it came across that in part one, for example, that was very much a, a Mauro-tinged look at Ivochit, as it were. And then once we get into part two, we really do have a, whilst it's the same narrative, we have a different tone underlying where we've just come to, essentially, with quite a nice domestic scene between a close mother and daughter relationship, even though they weren't entirely honest at the beginning. And then the third part would be a sort of a difficult mix of both of these narrative voices and what it essentially accumulates to is that final scene which I think of as an in-between moment where you have them both looking at the fire and we don't necessarily have we're not living in that future moment where Mauro has to get his treatment we're not living in that past moment where they had that violent domestic relationship it's that moment where they experience something else that's almost outside of narrative time mm. So talking about ambiguity even further, um, at the end of the short story, we have no idea what is going to happen next. Um, and so that I think that's a really, really interesting look at not looking at the before and not looking at the yet to come, but kind of really being in that moment um, without any promises of the future. Exactly. And and that was that would be what I mean by an in-between moment where we're almost outside of narrative time and we we see them experience a very intimate moment i mean it was quite emotional to record because it it brought so much to the surface that hadn't actually been spoken neither written by myself explicitly or indeed by mauro and clarice themselves so all of this uh, patches or all of this history that came together at that moment we don't know what happens but i believe that it is a cathartic moment in in the burning of the house down so essentially this is maru and pachi breaking the cycle that has been contributing to his poor mental health in that there's the failing farm and his long generations of family that have successfully farmed and he's found himself in this modern world that he can't quite fit into yeah and so i think there is while it is quite an upsetting tale and that he is entirely silenced within the narrative I do think that that cathartic nature of the final scene does extend to him, even if we don't know what happens next. At least it's a positive notion of things being burned down to the ground so that something new can start again. I think it's really interesting um, when uh, you mentioned Chekhov being an influence. I know Chekhov from uh, his playwriting. The idea of Chekhov's gun sprung <laughs> to mind um, mm -hmm. when he, he brought out the handgun. Um, and I had this moment where I was thinking, how... Is this going to deploy sat like in a satisfactory way? Because as I was first reading it, I didn't think 
Barney's surely not going to go for murder or suicide. Like it, it feels so outside of the subtlety. Um, and that choice to then sort of scare the bird, uh, the chickens away. Um, that just became a very poignant moment where I thought, oh wow, this is really a moment of either rock bottom or a commitment to something in in the future and to kind of getting better and kind of shaking off everything old um and so it really did leave me with that ambiguity still like I still don't know but it really left me with the this could go either way um and either way it is that cathartic kind of we're right at rock bottom or we're you know burning everything to the ground and then hopefully getting help it's yeah it's it's it was a really interesting moment um did you ever have any other plans for that gun i would i would add to that that what i liked about that scene was that it was also even though it was with this gun that is traditionally violence and death it was his ultimate act of compassion because i mean he's been living with these chickens they've been this sort of crux however absurd that may be but as his coping mechanism and Mm. it's something that he's used to try and help improve the lives of others by giving them to someone else yeah so using this gun in order to save his chickens i thought it was a little glimpse as you say it is rock bottom but it's also a glimpse that something can be rescued in the future that he is still capable of this act of love and um it i mean the inspiration came from real life we we traveled once to a home of someone by the beach out of season and we arrived there was no gas or anything so we went to the local bar to ask what they could do and they rang someone in a local building and a man with a very large belly and a handgun i have never seen a handgun so large in my life tucked into his belt and so in that respect the handgun made translators a slightly more violent symbol in say north american or english readership than it would here in brazil as in it would be a, a natural part of the plot. So whilst, of course, the murder rate here is horrific and there's an awful situation with, with owning guns that is unfolding with the president, it is also something a little bit more mundane, I think, with it too. I, I agree I agree that, obviously, it insinuates the possibility of murder or suicide, but it would also, when he comes out with it, more of a measure of perhaps instinctually reading it as a native reader that it may be a home protection tool rather than a plot device a la Chekhov. Mm. I think one of the things that you do so well in this story is create such a rounded character with Mauro, despite him not talking, despite him not having a thought, by, yes, having the sort of ambiguous moments where you think he's maybe caused a scene at the local sort of supermarket, um, and then he has this history with Patchy of, of um, domestic abuse, but then he had given this chicken to Clarice, um, someone he saw as someone who was alone. Um, and so you see the contradictions of him, and I think you did that really beautifully. Oh, thank you very much. He's a, he was an interesting character to write. It, uh, it's surprisingly difficult to write a character who doesn't say anything, but I think in in some ways it's an excellent exercise to, to see what you really want from a character before you get them to speak. That is really interesting. I would be fascinated to hear what Mario came out with. <laughs> <laughs> so would I. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about how uh, the story sort of interacted with the audio portion. Um, before we kind of get into the recording um, chat of it, what is your experience with audiobooks? Are you a listener? Are you not? Tell us tell us about that. So I am 
nowadays an avid listener. The first time I tried them wasn't so successful. I tried, I thought it'd be a good solution to listen to books while on the daily commute. Yeah. I was living in Toronto at the time and I'm of short enough stature that I'm the perfect height for sweaty armpits and elbows to knock oh. out the earbuds <laughs> and it was just a really unpleasant experience. So I got myself a bike and stopped doing that but I couldn't listen while cycling. So I stopped for a while and then eventually I took up what is now my dear hobby, which is crochet. Crochet. And I discovered that the perfect antidote to the overwhelming threat of academia, where you just, you're reading and writing and teaching all day and it's hard to unwind, is to sit down, crochet, and have an audiobook so you're not straining your eyes and reading anymore. And for me, it has just been the most blissful way to tune out. You're not watching something that you particularly want to watch on TV. You're choosing what you're doing. You're listening to some literature or a podcast and it's entirely your own space. I've, I found it fantastic for my mental health and, you know, just being able to relax, really. So that's really interesting because so many people um, mm. listen to audiobooks on mm. the go when they're commuting, uh, doing dishes, all those sorts of different things. Um, and I feel like recently, especially in the nightmarish 2020, we just had lots of people um, are beginning to turn to audiobooks while they're doing a puzzle or while they're doing something with their hands. And so, it, yeah, it, it rings certainly very true with a lot of the audio people Um I know that to do crochet whilst listening to an audiobook is is really that winding down um, moment. So you were asked to come on this uh, podcast um, and I don't think you truly uh, looked forward to the recording element of it. So <laughs> tell me about that feeling. How how was it? I was, I was admittedly worried before we recorded it. <laughs> uh, Tell me why. Like, why was that the concern? I suppose I was primarily worried going into this. Apart from enjoying shouting obscenities while I'm watching sport, most of the time I'm quite a quiet man. And the prospect of narrating something, my own work no less, and to really bring it alive, I found that quite a scary idea to to have such responsibility on my shoulders to do the work justice. You know, there's a your own work, you're already critical of it enough, and then to have the thought that you could sink your ship even further by not narrating it in a in a great way it was a something that not necessarily i didn't feel uncomfortable recording it at all i just felt a little bit out of my depth of my skill set shall we say i mean your blanket fort was superior <laughs> you really really embraced it i will um have to see if i can get one of those photos and put that on the uh blog post um but yeah, so what was what was the process of recording it like? What was difficult? What was easier than expected? What was enjoyable? What wasn't? So I would say there was nothing that wasn't enjoyable during the whole process. And actually, I would say it's perhaps been one of the best things I've done as a writer to really make you understand how you write. Now, the biggest challenge I had, I think, and something that I learned the most from was seeing how you approach a literary text with your rich background of drama in that your mind instinctively thinks what is the character thinking when they say this but there's a whole history of thought process that goes into this which I'd realized that obviously I created this story I, I know what all of that is but it's somehow intrinsic and within me whereas you really challenged to make that explicit 
And that was actually harder than I thought it would be to really say what it is I meant when this dialogue comes up. And you had this knack of just saying, you know, I would ask you to give me an example. And I think, wow, that's exactly what I wanted to say. But I could have sat here six hours on my own and <laughs> never come to the same conclusion. So that was difficult. And I think it was a slower start because of that in order to have the right tone, the right frame of voice, the, the approach to it. I think we got a bit better towards the end, less definitely constant cutting. <laughs> um, no, it's it's always a slow start at the beginning, no matter how professional you are or anything like that, um, because it's, it's getting used to the text. It's getting your voice really in tune with it. But no matter how many times I tell anyone that they always believe that they're the outlier and that they're the one that is truly truly awful <laughs> oh no i was surprised we got to the end i was relieved so <laughs> it wasn't a terminal disaster yeah i think you you were really responsive and i think one of the things that um makes for such a good author narrator is someone who asks questions um and and i think there are so many moments where you said wait can you just say that again or can you can you give me an example and and we really dug, dug into that which was really nice and i think this was for me a challenging text to direct purely in the fact that there isn't that expression in the narration as much as maybe purely for the fact that Mario wasn't having thoughts um, that we were interacting with. And so really kind of embracing the sort of classic narrator, the tone of a narrator, um, and kind of bringing in that sort of old school audiobook vibe with your very, very well-spoken pattern rhythms. Um, I, I, I quite liked that. I thought that was a really nice uh, moment. And then... As Mauro doesn't say anything, the only people who are talking are women. Um, so let's t tell me how uh, that was. So when we got to the section, uh, I mean, I, I told you I was uh, aware from having listened to some audiobooks that I ended up disliking because of the way that the male narrator had presented female voices. I was aware of the fact that I didn't want to go the route where you, you know, rock out your falsetto and it just sounds ridiculous. No woman or man has ever sounded like that. So how to get that between two women with my own voice? I think that was more of the challenge to distinguish between them, especially for the listener, so they don't have to struggle to find out who's speaking. Um, I, I loved your advice to say make Clarice's voice, who is the older statesman of the household, to to slow her voice down, even to deepen it a bit. I mean, I'm, I don't have a deep gravelly voice, so she wouldn't sound strange if I had made it lower anyway. I realised in the recording, I didn't quite do it justice, but in my mind, I understood the justice that it should have received in terms of having a woman speaking with her daughter. There is an intimacy to it, but they both have a vocabulary and a way of speaking that is is in a way quite formal too, which perhaps is mm -hmm. a reflection of my own mind, but also a reflection, you know, university educated mayor and a woman from a past generation. It may strike us a little bit dated, um, and I was a little bit worried it would come across as a bit dry. I don't think it has at all. I think that there's really, um, I think what you managed with those voices, with even with the formality, was that there was still that sensitivity. You still really managed to kind of get those, yeah, get get the sensitivity of the relationship between them. Um, you managed to get some really beautiful urgency and Patchy's sort of narration, a bit more vitality and that sort of slow, considered and sort of taking a breath feeling uh, with Clarice. Um, yeah, I I think I think you managed that really well. Um, one of the things after our recording session that I I thought about and I wanted to ask you um, is when you're listening to an audiobook with a woman narrating um, and then giving voice to a man, have you come across 
sort of similar irritation? I, I'm I'm interested because I I don't have that perspective. That's a good question. And actually, I think there has only been two stories that I've listened to that have been narrated by women and give male voices, which may say something of the market. I'm I have I have no idea. Um, I have plenty of recommendations. Don't you worry. <laughs> Good. I have. I had no complaints from that. There was no sort of trying to emulate deep voice that just sounded out of context. I think the the real professionals and you you see how wonderful they are at their jobs when you listen to a good audio book and somehow even without modulating their voices to these unnatural pitches for the person speaking, they're still able to really capture it very distinct intonations. And I think that's really what what makes a good audio book reader rather than you know, being a, a voice actor, just uh, mimicking, really. Yeah. Um, no, that was just really interesting. I realised that that's something that I had never, I'd never considered it the other way around. Mm-hmm. So let's go on to talk about the process of listening to it. Um, <laughs> I, I give full permission for uh, author narrators to find it very <laughs> awkward to listen to themselves. People aren't usually uh, fond of their voice. Um, I think one of the things to, to mention about the recording, um, especially with this short story, is that you wrote a short story. It's got three parts to it. Um, and within each part, there's a chapter. The version I think you've listened to has the chapters um, in. Um, but we, we talked a little bit about actually removing the chapters um, and then just having it in three parts. And so what I'd love for you to just touch on is, one, that structure of it written down, why does that work for you and why is it interesting to you? Um, and then also now moving on to the audio, I'd suggested maybe taking out those chapters and what was it that made you agree? Yes, that was actually something I only realised almost the day before that it would be a, a challenge in the audio format in that, yes, I I wrote three parts and I, I love the way that they've been divided in the in the final form. I, th- I, I love the interlude. I love the fact that it reflects my mind's pattern the way that I saw these very distinct sections and I think having it in parts somehow lets us divide the narrative voice a little bit easier especially in audio form every every little helps that you Mm. don't see on the page now the chapters in the writing I do think they serve a valuable purpose of almost having a, a scene break in between them Without the chapters in the writing, we wouldn't quite get that sense of distinct steps from one to the other. Mm. And especially, as you said, we have Mauro who doesn't speak. I think that actually helps give us a little bit of forward momentum as we go through certain sections. Now, I understand entirely why it would be better to remove it in the audiobook, in that you're setting a scene when you're performing it, and then suddenly you... What's the theatrical term? Feels like breaking the fourth wall. Exactly. So we're suddenly drawn back to, oh, we're changing chapters now. Whereas when you change the part, there's a reason for us changing part of the book. Whereas the chapter, well, I believe it becomes quite jilted to take the reader out and then put them back in again and to follow the same train of thought and to follow the tone through all of that. So um, I'm happy the chapters are gone and I'm happy the parts are in. And you could argue that we could change the parts to chapters. But having them in different parts has a sort of finality that I, I quite like in between. Yeah, them. it has this sense of enormity mm. to it as well. It's not mm-hmm. like the idea of a chapter kind of feels not throwaway, but 
easily possible, mm-hmm. but the idea is exactly yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're reading, it's not something you normally pay mm-hmm. attention to. It's at the top of the page, and you carry on. Right. It's good to know where you're up in the book, but apart from that, in form. Yeah, I thought, and I think that's really interesting. In that, um, I think the suggestion originally actually came from uh, Ted. Um, he had listened to it, um, and he knows your writing quite well. Um, and he kind of said, you know what, I think this might just disrupt the flow a little bit. And I think especially with the uh, the contrast between sitting down and reading something and audio, it feels as though audio is more designed to kind of go straight through. Whereas when you sit down and read something, you get to reread sentences, you get to kind of take in at your own pace. Um, and so a 12 page short story could take you an hour to go through if you're reading it sort of at a certain pace and you're kind of going back and really considering but with the audio um which ended up at 20 minutes it kind of felt very um sudden you had these sudden chapters but yeah it's really interesting how sometimes uh you have to kind of make mm-hmm. uh allowances for the different format and I like to think of it as um adaptation as opposed to just like this is the audio version I like to think of it as okay how best can it serve this format exactly and that's something I came away I've been thinking quite obsessively over I suppose in that it really is a I'm not sure if a change of genre is the right word but when you put it into audio format it's not really, even though I'm narrating, it's not really my story in original form anymore. It's a, mm. it's an interpretation of it. It's a performance of it. And it's a, you know, it's a very specific performance of it. So that's something that you wouldn't necessarily get if you're reading it where you picture it in your own mind. And it's this sort of increasingly new and important area in literature that lies between the traditional novel story format and theatre, for example. So mm-hmm. I've I've been trying to get my head around how I how I can interpret that. I still have no answers, but it was amazing to be part of that process to see just what it takes to make an you know to make an audiobook. I had some idea of what I would be doing, but no idea of really what it entails. Not just in the practicalities, but really when we're talking about what literature does and how we interpret it. Absolutely. There was a collaboration um, between you and me. So it instantly became something other than its original form. Exactly. Um, And so what I'm super interested in is how was it hearing the story and kind of hearing the new interpretation or slightly alternate interpretations because it was between you and me? And are there new things that you've learned about your story? Yes, absolutely. I think I actually feel I understand the characters much better now. I understand how much more goes into their thinking and the and the way that they speak, which maybe it's because I, I wrote it. But when you have to perform it, you have to go to, you have to add an extra layer onto what you were doing before. And in terms of being directed by you as well in order to do that, it really is a collaborative process and becomes something actually much more than just my story because there are so many more factors that govern your and I beliefs of what they might be saying here of or what this word means here so i think it's a really rich format in term in terms of coming to grips with with what the author means and even as i as the author you know it really made me question is this really what i meant and uh i came away realizing that you know once it's an audio book form and you're collaborating with someone who is uh testing your ideas and really 
not picking at the seams because there was never anything that was being pulled apart. It was actually the opposite, really prodding you a little bit further than you'd normally comfortably think about the story. I, I thought that was amazing to my experience, at least. I mean, that's great. And there's also the um, the third component is is the listener will have their own interpretation of what you and I have done. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, it is really rich. And I think I just want to um, touch on that last um last scene where you talked about it was it was quite an emotional scene um and i think actually you gained such beautiful sensitivity from the moment that pachi um said hello mauro um and there's that moment where she's talking about essentially i'll always be there for you i can't remember the the exact quote and that was a real moment of sensitivity and there's such poise in that moment as well i've left a bit of space around it to make sure that it really uh uh, the the pattern and the rhythm um, sort of matches one how you read it at the time um, because I think by that point you did that one in one I don't think you recorded that twice and I think that was a really really perfect combination of the writing of how you wanted a male voice to narrate a female voice um, of a sort of the collaboration and then I think it communicates perfectly to the listener. Mm, that was an amazing scene to record and actually I had never felt emotional while reading that to myself and I mean I did when writing but still never quite to that depth. My wife will tell you that I'm the emotional byproduct of British boarding school in that <laughs> everything is is put deep down and we don't talk about it and we don't do anything with it and it was a revelation moment for me in that sense of narrating something and seeing it really forces us out of you as a writer to to confront the actual situation that you're writing about it's not just fiction it's almost somehow living and real you know audiobook did that it was yeah it was quite special actually do you think you might use that going forward um, it, with your writing and kind of maybe go through the process of recording yourself, narrating it and then listening back and kind of then going back and editing? I, I've been wondering. I think that would certainly help, especially with dialogue and especially mm. with finding the right voice. I think yeah. part of what made that process slightly more emotional than if I were reading it myself was that you're reading it aloud and you're sharing it with someone else mm. and somehow that process of sharing it and you know obviously I had feedback from you and somehow that process made it uh, more alive than if I were just recording it to myself and saying it back to mm. myself. Yeah that's really interesting I mean despite coming from a sort of performance theatre background and I've never really thought of myself when directing an audiobook I've never really thought of myself as an audience member but I, I'm I guess I am. That's really fascinating. So, I mean, I, I think we've we've really touched on the last question was uh, how has it changed your feeling about audiobooks, audio productions? Um, we've touched a lot on that, but is there anything else you'd like to add? I would say that my listening now going forward with the audiobooks will, will certainly be quite different. I don't think I'll be more critical at all. I think I'll be in awe of what these people can achieve. I'm listening to a... Uh, audiobook of Dickens' uh, Tale of Two Cities. And the narration is just fantastic. Really, really lovely. Oh, really? Who narrates it? Do you know? I do. It is, I wrote it down because I'm absolutely awful with names, uh, Simon Vance. Simon Barnes. Yeah. Okay. I love A Tale of Two Cities. It's oh, one of my it's... favourites. So I'll have to look at that one. And, you know, it's amazing that we can listen to classic literature like that and still have it brought into the into our modern world. It's, it's quite something. 
Um, am I allowed to ask a question? You are allowed to ask a question. Oh, good. Well, I was wondering how recording this and the story has made you think about your own story. Oh, that's such a coming up. Such a good question. Um, one of the things I'm after each. Uh, episode one of the things I'm doing is writing down sort of my notes what I kind of took from everything um, mm. and I think one of the things that I, I've really started thinking about in terms of how my story can be sort of influenced by your style by your um, sort of choices that you make is that the the ambiguity of so many moments how you manage to communicate so much without having a character speak and without ha- um, having mm. them even have a thought. And so I've, I've really been thinking about how that might apply um, to the story that I've... I mean, I've, ha- I've got a couple of ideas that I'm still playing around with. I haven't started drafting yet. Yeah, the ambiguity and thinking how that might play into it has been uh, something that I haven't haven't thought of before because for me I find ambiguity incredibly scary the idea of not giving your listener or reader answers that feels very scary um but having sort of seen yeah. you do it so well it's kind of made me think okay so what was it that he did what and so yeah this that's been yeah super informative for me yeah. well I mean it's something that I struggle with but the thing that has helped me has been, you know, the critical feedback of, you know, Ed and yourself in terms of it's so easy to go too far the other way. Yeah, that no, that is really interesting. I'm always uh, interested to see how people respond to each story. Um, and I think that this one's going to be super interesting. Um, it was lovely that we had um, uh, music composed um, for it, which was really mm. lovely. And it kind of, it lovely, yeah, I it? think it's it's so nice because, again, it's really responding to the text rather than sort of finding a piece of music that might be appropriate. Um, I've been very lucky that I have my own resident musician. Um, <laughs> it's nice, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's very nice. <laughs> and so I've been able to have original pieces for all of, all of the um, stories so Barnabas thank you so much for joining me today um if anyone wants to sort of find your writing uh or you anywhere else um yeah where, where can they find you so I have just joined modern society and joined twitter so <laughs> please reach out to me I'm Barnabas D Kirk somewhere on twitter I'm not sure what you do though um yeah it's lonely out there so any feedback, any uh, writer's circles that you can open up, I would love to be able to talk about more about this podcast. It's been an absolutely amazing experience. So anyone listening and thinking of what to do with their writing, I would highly recommend podcasting it to test your nerves and really improve your writing because it has done mine. And thank you all for listening. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much to Barnabas for sharing his story and process with us this week. And thank you to Teddy Merricks, my one-man production team for the music and logos. And thanks, of course, to you for listening. If you could take a second to rate and review the podcast and share it on social media, I would be so appreciative. It honestly does help for discoverability by making sure a podcast doesn't get lost at the bottom of the pile. And it's great to hear your feedback. I love to see when you guys are listening. If you're interested in getting involved, either by submitting your short story or having a chat with me about audiobooks, you can find more info and contact details on my website at englishgirlinnewyork.org. 
I also hang around on Instagram under at alishasbooks.n.bobs, as in books and bobs. This was In Short the Podcast from Blanket Fort Productions. See you all next time.